Welcome to The Last Week on Earth with Gary. Today's guest is Benny Moles, renowned science and technology journalist with a background in physics and philosophy on his fascination with AI and robotics and his dream that one day the co-author of a paper will be an AI. We will go through the history of artificial intelligence from it being just a science to being applicable, what can AI not do, research and investment in AI in the US, China and Europe, how do we differ, how to combine the best of humans with the best of machines. Enjoy the podcast and please subscribe and share. Well, the question that I would like to be asked is what fascinates you in artificial intelligence? And I noticed that very often when I talk to journalists or when I give a presentation for a, a wider audience, people ask me either questions about the very negative side of AI, like is AI going to uh, dominate the world? Or it's on the very positive side, like AI is going, going to solve all our problems in healthcare or wherever. So I, I really like to talk a little bit about this fascination for artificial intelligence also as a scientific subject, because that is basically the way that I came into this field. Um, for me, artificial intelligence combines three of my passions in the field of knowledge, science, technology, and philosophy. From the scientific point of view, you can ask a question like, is it possible to build an intelligent machine? And let's say that scientifically you answer this question with yes, then the technological question is, okay, but how are we going to build such a machine? What type of materials? What type of design? What type of computing would you need to really build a practical uh, uh, artificial intelligence, which is intelligent? And from the philosophical point of view, you can ask questions like, what does it mean to be intelligent? If a machine is intelligent, is it then also automatically conscious? How are we able to kind of measure whether a machine has consciousness or not? So for me, kind of all the questions I have about, about the world from science, from technology, and from philosophy, they come together in the field of artificial intelligence. And that's what I really would like to tell. And to me, the question, what fascinates you in AI is very obvious, but hardly ever people ask me this. <laughs> yeah, I think I love that. I think it's it's very unfortunate that we don't focus on our natural curiosity. We just focus on what it can mean or if it's bad or if it's good. When I was going through uh, your CV, I, I really liked the, the, the connection uh, physics and philosophy. That is something that Sodessa also suggested. It is something they were trying to promote via Gary too. Can you give us a, a sort of a more uh, practical understanding of, for our listeners of how these two uh, disciplines are empowering each other and how the, the resulting uh, mass of understanding uh, is, is, is enhanced? Uh, the reason why I'm asking is that uh, it, it might not be it might not be self-evident at first. In, in, in sort of practical terms, how, how, how did it uh, empower uh, you as, as a researcher or as a scholar or as a journalist that you can yeah. really combine these two, uh, these two fields? All right. Well, basically, I uh, became interested uh, uh, in artificial intelligence around the, the year 2010. And there is a little anecdote to tell around this. Um, for many years, I think many people keep a list of books that they still want to read, and you never have time to read all the books on your list. But on my list, there was the uh, biography of Alan Turing, the great British uh, computer pioneer. 
And finally, I was with my wife uh, on a holiday in Mexico. I had time to read and I uh, took the biography of Turing with me and I started to read it and I got so absorbed by his thinking about computers in, in the 1930s and 40s. And I saw that he was very much interested in the human brain as well. He really connected thinking about intelligent machines with trying to understand human intelligence. And that was the moment that I thought, wow, yes. So if you are really thoroughly thinking about how to build an intelligent machine, um, then it also helps you in trying to answer the question what human intelligence uh, uh, is. And around that time, 2010, there was, um, there was really a, a great hype around artificial intelligence. Maybe you remember these stories by Ray Kurzweil that he predicts that there is something like the singularity, a moment that machines become more intelligent than humans. So around that time, the whole flow around uh, artificial intelligence was very, um, was very positive, actually. Also, Kurzweil saw it as, as something very positive. And I think if you, if you fast forward uh, uh, five to 10 years, then suddenly we saw all kinds of ethical issues uh, uh, popping up, like uh, the, the Chinese government going to use uh, facial recognition, uh, to keep track of their Uyghur minority in the northwestern part of China or uh, American cities that were experimenting with uh, robots that would patrol the street and that would look around. So suddenly you, you would see these ethical issues popping up, like, like, is this something we really want? So that's where you, you get the connection between let's say the natural science side uh, of artificial intelligence and the philosophical side. And it took some time, I think, for many researchers and definitely for the larger public um, to realize that there, that there are a lot of ethical and more broadly speaking, philosophical issues in building uh, artificial intelligence. And, and now we are, are at this point that everywhere people are talking about the negative impact of, of uh, uh, artificial intelligence, the bias, which is in some data, uh, data sets, uh, some jobs that get lost, black box decisions. So artificial intelligence taking decisions without humans being able to find out why exactly the system took that decision or think about designing an artificial intelligent system very often requires that we think about values that we as humans find important. Also very important uh, philosophical issue, or maybe the last, uh, which I can mention in this context, creating deep fake videos or deep fake texts that are impossible to, um, impossible to find out whether it was, was created by human or by a, by a machine. So in the last five years, a lot of more philosophical issues um, came into the field of artificial intelligence. Thank you very much for verbalizing the pace or the, the swiftness that the artificial intelligence made it from not being really recognized, you know, from the, the sort of AI winter to an object of fear. <laughs> And uh -huh. hatred in some in some in some regards. I, I remember my, my brother was in the early '90s was was in the AI uh, basic research field, and he would turn on the computer in the morning, put some codes, and then he would chill out for the rest of the day. And I thought, yeah, well, that's a pretty good job. And uh -huh. there, was, there was in the middle of the of the AI winter, and then through this sort of geek-driven 
enterprise. We got to this overhyped AI, you know, AI is the future, AI is the end. Yeah. Uh, how would you explain that, that it was so quick, you know, such a quick, you know, it, it was really within a span of a couple of years, in my opinion. Yeah, well, actually, I think it was the year 2012, if I if I have it correct. But yeah, around that time, let's say 2012, that um, scientists discovered basically a new way um, to do pattern recognition. For many years, there has been such a contest in uh, machines that have to label images. So you give all kinds of images to machines, uh, images of houses, of cars, of, of chairs, of human people. Um, and then the computer has to tell, well, this is, uh, this is this object, this is that object. And for many years, since 2005, every year, there was a tiny, tiny improvement. But then in 2012, people came with a completely new architecture, which we now call deep learning. And suddenly the machine really improved enormously uh, on this image recognition. And that was the moment that you see that there is a huge spark, which, which created a lot of academic interest in deep learning and very rapidly. And that is maybe from the practical point of view, the most important, very rapidly, all kind of companies, businesses started to come with real world applications. So deep learning is now just a, a part of like, for example, a translation uh, engine. So the, the, there was really this spark of, of deep learning uh, in 2012, which very rapidly led to a lot of new kind of uh, applications, which very often really work in the real world. For example, a couple of days ago, I wrote an article in Dutch, but I also had to deliver it to the editor in English. I just took uh, the DeepL uh, translating uh, engine, which is actually a German, uh, German company, better than Google Translate in my opinion. And really with the click of on, on the mouse, I have a two page English translation. I went through it. I really, I could hardly find any mistakes. I, I, I changed a couple of, uh, of words, but I was even not sure whether I was better than a machine in this. And if I compare this to 10 years ago, well, at, at that time, I still had to tweak the translation quite a bit. And now it has become so good that it's really extremely practical. I, I even know professional translators who use it, to, for example, to get a first uh, impression of, uh, of a book. What kind of uh, philosophy and what kind of physics? Uh... Yeah, well, I, I uh, first graduated in uh, physics, doing the theoretical physics. Then I uh, did a study in philosophy, specialized in uh, philosophy of language and cognitive sciences. So already at that time, um, I was reading about things like the Turing test and, and more philosophical uh, questions that you can ask around artificial intelligence. But at that time, artificial intelligence really was, was academic. There were hardly any applications. And then after I graduated from philosophy as well, I did a PhD in physics and I went to something uh, called theoretical fluid dynamics. So I was making simulations and theories about how tiny liquid droplets behave in turbulent uh, flows. And doing my research, I, I, I think after two years, I found out that, yes, I, I, I like to do research, but I don't want to make my life with it. And I'm more, in this terms, I'm more a generalist than a specialist. So I decided I want to uh, do something with writing and combining it with science in a more broader sense. And that's the way I started being a science journalist in 1999, it was, yeah.
When you were interviewing Gary Kasparov in 2017, you asked for his motivation for writing his book, Deep Thinking, Where Machine Intelligence Ends and Human Creativity Begins. He responded, I want to make people think realistically about the relation between humans and machines without being overjoyed or too fearful. So what's your method of achieving this balance in journalism? We share the same frustration <laughs> that it's always either technology is great or technology is <laughs> horrible and we should yeah, all be afraid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would say use a, a natural skepticism towards whatever you read in, in, in the media about artificial intelligence. And also always ask the question, what can the system not do? Because very often people will tell you what it can do. Um, but it's really, it's really important also to be honest about what it, um, what it can not um, do. To give you a, a clear example, in 2015, I had a discussion on the radio with a scientist here in the Netherlands and he was working on self-driving cars. And we got the question like, when, when are cars going to be completely self-driving? You can push the button and drive from A to B. And he said in 2015, he said, well, over five years, so in 2020. And I said, no way, this is going to take decades. Because already at that time, you could see that there were some fundamental problems which were not solved on, on the scientific level. So it was really impossible that in five years it would be solved on the, on the practical technological level. And then I think about like a car not just has to avoid a collision, it also has to understand how pedestrians or cyclists or other, uh, uh, other people in cars, how they behave. And predicting this behavior is really a difficult problem that we are still struggling with. Another problem is, dealing with all kinds of weather conditions, because very often if you read stories about self-driving cars, they are tested somewhere in Arizona where the sun always shines. Well, that's, that's relatively easy, but it's a different story to drive in the winter in Boston when there is snow everywhere. So the, 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 um, the challenge of dealing with all kinds of weather conditions is just not solved for, for self-driving uh, cars. So that's, a, that's, I think, an example of, of that as a journalist, you have, to, you have to know the field, you have to know the history. And if you look at the history, you see that there have, have always been periods of great hype, very often followed by great disappointment. And I also think that for the, for the academic field itself, it's not, it's not very healthy if, if uh, first there is a huge hype, then there is disappointment, then people don't get research money anymore. It's much better if there is a continuous research uh, funding. But I think that sometimes academic researchers, they feel that they have to promise a lot to society in order to get research money. Companies, they often want to sell their products, so they also are only positive. So then to me as a journalist, is it, it is a task to also look at what the system can't do. And still, I want to kind of, um, I also want to show that, that as a person, I'm really enthusiastic about the science of artificial intelligence. I'm really interested in how we can build uh, intelligent uh, uh, machines. We will definitely get back to this uh, to this area later. But just a question related to, to pretty fundamental question that we're having here at Gary. And uh, when we started the, this this endeavor, you know, to start understanding globalization with the use of AI and and like huge data amounts, the goal was sort of to overcome the political. I don't know how to call it, the political scientific approach that things either are or they are not. I mean, 
the, the, the system is either open or it's not, you know, and you have some sort of scaling between that. But our approach to that was that we would like to move beyond the zero one sort of uh, um, mentality and yeah, uh, yeah. To, to start, you know, the endless scaling of what can happen. But then I realized there is a big normative problem with that because we as humans, we need some sort of more secure and, and some sort of more anchored, um, you know, way of understanding our values now. And, and I became worried that what if the answers that we will get through the AI driven research will be too too gray for us to, to you know, what if it will break our understanding of, of what's good and, and uh, what is good and bad? This is, re- this is something that really keep, keeps me worried. Can you think of an example to illustrate this? What uh, you fear that might happen? Or Let's, for example, talk about Turkey <laughs> and uh, whether Turkey will be, uh, you know, how, how Turkey is behaving and how it is going to be behaving in the future regarding mm-hmm. its current political regime. And uh, we've had a research now, data research, which, you know, gave us some sort of answers. And, and but in general, you want to know whether Turkey is going to be pro-European, pro-Western or not. That's uh-huh. the sort of question mm-hmm. you get. But yeah. then... Uh, you might get a, and this is very simplified question, but then you might get a really uh, diversified uh, answer mm-hmm. along many lines. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, it sort of reflects the world as it is. Mm-hmm. But then I'm afraid that we will be venturing into normative sort of um, answers, which might break down the very fabric uh, of, of our values as, uh, you know, as, as we need it. Okay, let, let's look at artificial intelligence a bit more from the geopolitical uh, point of view, then I think you can can see that the US, they are investing heavily in artificial intelligence. China is investing heavily in artificial intelligence. Uh, Europe is also trying to hardly invest in uh, artificial intelligence. But the starting point for these three blocks is is different. Like in, in the US, it's basically business first. And even under President uh, Biden, I think it will still be very much focused on the US. I think Europe really has to become, well, relying, has to rely much more on itself. And then in China, the AI development is much more really driven from, from, uh, from the government. So I think, and that is also the official position in, in Europe, that Europe uh, wants to develop human-centered artificial intelligence. And that means that from the very beginning of designing a system, you have to tell which values are for us Europeans important and put these into into the system. And I think this kind of design by values uh, could be an answer to to what you just say. I don't think we have to, well, I don't think we have to be afraid of, of data. We have to think before we design a system, like what, what are really the values that we want that the system uh, uh, sticks to? Thank you very much. This is, I think this is the, this is sort of the approach that we will have to be leaning to, I guess, if I put it more simply is what if we don't like the answer <laughs> the research uh-huh. gives us? Uh, and and you, you, you provided uh, excellent and excellent uh, answers. It's, it's great to talk in an open way and discuss what, what uh, kind of is in, all, in, in our heads. <laughs> 
do you believe Europe can catch up with the US and China? And it doesn't need to be in the same field, but so that it can be taken as a yeah. real AI leader yeah. in the world, worth a mention yeah. in the global AI race. So Holger talks about human-led AI, but that Europe prefers regulation over development. Do you think this will change how and when? If, if you look at academic research, uh, Europe is really top. Uh, in the last 20 years, Europe was really on, on was the number one in the number of uh, academic papers produced in uh, in the field of artificial uh, intelligence. Europe has 50% more researchers in AI than the US and twice as many as China. So we are excellently positioned in the in the academic field of uh, of AI. It's a different story if you look at, uh, uh, at the private sector, as at, at, at business. There, for example, you see that in private investments, uh, US has six times as much as Europe, and China four and a half times as uh, much private investment in, uh, uh, in AI. If you look at the number of AI companies per one million uh, inhabitants, then it's in the US uh, three times as much as in Europe. So in the private and business part, US is really doing much, much better. Um, and I think that is where particularly Europe should catch up, for example, by stimulating private-public uh, partnerships. And th there are a couple of, of companies that have been bought over the last 10 years uh, by, uh, uh, by companies in China and the US. For example, there is a great robotics company in, in Germany, KUKA, that was bought a number of years ago by, uh, by Chinese company. Uh, Skype was basically, um, it started in Europe, then it was bought by Microsoft. Uh, there is this, this maybe the, the most well-known AI company in Europe is DeepMind, the company that produced this AlphaGo computer that beat one of the best Go players. It was very rapidly, it was bought by Google. So I think Europe should do more its best to, to keep such companies also really in, in, in European hands. And probably we were a little bit naive in this over the last 10 years, but I hope that this is, uh, that this is changing because it, it's very important that Europe is not completely dependent on, on American infrastructure or that we send all our data to, to US companies. Let's try to really keep this in, in, in Europe. In terms of expertise, know-how, in terms of where oh, America yes. is at the moment, can we do it soon on, alone in Europe? Do you think that's a good idea? I, I think if you want, we really can. But a lot of things in Europe really depend on whether, whether there is really the will to cooperate. And, and that is very much a political, political issue. The, if you look at the academic researchers in Europe, they already created uh, something called, uh, called CLARE. It's a confederation of laboratories for AI research in Europe. It kind of combines all AI uh, research. So on that level, they already did this. What they really would need, I think, is support from... Uh, from national governments. Uh, uh, if it, well, a very good example is the, the Institute CERN in Geneva. They do uh, research into the fundamental build, building blocks of, of nature. They, well, it's like top in the world. I mean, why not create something like this in the field of artificial intelligence? I think the fact that, um, that Europe is diverse, that we have different languages, a little bit different values here and there, um, uh, a little bit different culture. 
I think it's we can really use it as as something positive because if we are able to develop uh, an application of, of artificial intelligence which works in Europe, well, then there is a high chance it will, will work elsewhere in the world as well. And maybe African countries or South American countries are more interested to buy uh, European technology, which is tested for all type of, of uh, languages and cultures, than just something which is American or just something which is Chinese. So I, I think Europe is really excellently, excellently positioned. The academic researchers want to want to collaborate. I think that on the political level, there could be a bit more push to to make this really happen. Well, thank you very much for mentioning uh, CERN because this is something that we all, all also have been talking about for the past maybe three years already. And uh, when, when you know, when I was really amazed when I looked at the at the sort of founding text or or, or the founding reason for. Uh, CERN, it very much reminded me of the situation in AI in Europe, as it said that 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 Europe is lagging behind in the nuclear nuclear research, and we need to do something about it. Uh -huh. uh, and it looks like we might be in a similar situation now. And and from from lagging behind, CERN became the the one single most important world physics um, organization. So yeah. so that that's why I really like the the uh, the example of CERN. But if, if I were, you know, stepping down to earth, I hope not under earth, but down to earth. <laughs> if you were to talk to an employee, you know, let's say mid to low income uh, person, regardless of the actual sector, what is there something you would say to her or him about the AI? You know, what's, what's, in, what's in AI for you, uh, uh, essentially? Okay. I, I, I tell you a little anecdote. Two years ago, I wrote a report about uh, international AI policy uh, for the, a, a, Dutch, um, uh, a Dutch advisory board to the government. And when the report was presented, I was asked to give, uh, to give a presentation. And in the, in the room, there was our Dutch prime minister. And of course, he was the first one who who was uh, who could ask me a question after my presentation and he asked exactly the question that you just now asked he said you know i go to the egg where the government is seated and i meet uh, this uh, working class people and they ask me what's in it for me so now i give you the answer <laughs> i said that well listen i, I, I a couple of months ago, I was in a, in a uh, car menu, was at a car manufacturer in the southern part of the Netherlands, a, actually the only factory in the Netherlands that still produces cars. And I came there and I was guided around by a guy who had who was just retired. He had been working here 40 years. And this whole factory was full of robots, really. It was incredible. It was like a ballet of robotic arms putting together all these huge parts of a car. So then, and then I asked him, I said, well, you, you have been working here 40 years. You must have carried around such heavy components. I asked him, so are you disappointed? Or are you angry that robots are doing this job now that you used to do? And he said, well, come on. I mean, this was really very, very, very heavy work. And it's really much better and more efficient, much safer um, if robots can do this job. And I... After, after the robots came, I got a, got a different task at the company. And th so th that is basically also my, my, my answer. Um, a lot of dull, dirty, and dangerous things 
are really much better if we can give them to robots. There is still a lot of work in the world which, which is dull, dirty and dangerous uh, for people. So why not give this to robots and re-educate people to do something, something different? The same with artificial intelligence. There are a lot of really boring tasks um, that are really much better to give this to the computer and let us humans do what we are much better at, uh, empathy, communicating with, with other people. Um, and that generally, I think, is my, my kind of um, position in the whole field of artificial intelligence. We, would re we really have to think about how to combine the best of humans with the best of machines. That's what I call hybrid intelligence. Let us humans do what we are better at than uh, machines and let the machines do what they are better at. But in order to, well, introduce this hybrid intelligence in, so in society, of course, you need a little bit of re-education of people. People have to, well, get used to the fact that uh, parts of their jobs will be done by the machines, but other parts uh, still will be done by them. I really hope that if there is more artificial intelligence, robotics in healthcare, that people can take the time to talk with patients much more than is now possible. Uh, of course, we, we, you always have to keep an eye that that really happens because sometimes automation is introduced just, just to be more efficient than to fire people. That, that's not what, what I'm aiming for. I'm, I'm, I would aim for a more human healthcare where the machines do the, the boring stuff and the humans can connect to people. This is actually super enhanced now under COVID where um, people in hospitals have no support from, they, they can't have any visitors, the nurses, they don't have time to talk to them. This is super highlighted right now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I think this whole COVID crisis, well, on, on, on the one hand, uh, I'm, I'm very happy that we have a lot of technology like what we are using now to communicate uh, between where you are living and, and the Netherlands where I am. Um, it, well, this technology really makes it possible for, for me, for example, to do all my interviews from home. I mean, normally I, I would love to go to university or to company to, to talk to people, but okay, given the fact that we have this pandemic, then it's very good that, that a, a, well, a lot of our work we can still do from home, although it's not, it's not ideal. But uh, I'm wondering if, if we can somehow square the approach that the corporations or that the employers, not employees, but the, but the you know, those who are, you know, those who are trying to make business mm -hmm. and using AI for business purposes, how, whether we can square it with the, with the societal, what the society needs, because it yeah. seems to me that these two things are going exactly in the opposite directions. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely uh, agree with this worry. If you look at the, the, the power that companies like, uh, like Facebook and, and Google have, it's simply too much. I think that that's that's the main problem. They Google have once had the slogan like "Don't do evil." Well, if you now look at the problems they had with some of their ethics researchers that they fired and the way they dealt with this, I mean, this is. Um, I, I just can't understand that as a company you you deal with people in your own ethics research in such an unethical way, and. I think it's really because the, these companies got far too too much power, and technology is always a form of power. Uh, and as soon as it it becomes power, we need democratic control um, over it. It shouldn't be up to Twitter 
Well, it's a little bit strange that Twitter is so powerful that they can decide whether the president of the US can tweet or not, whatever you think about the tweets. But it's, 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 it's very weird. I mean, that they have more power than many democratic countries. So therefore, of course, you, you bring up the, the, the right point. Um, there should be more democratic control over the power of these big tech. Uh, companies, but it will be a very hard fight because these, well, the, the the five biggest tech companies in the world, they are all American, and and okay, in the U.S. The, there's the U.S. regulation, so we have to see what we can do in 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 Europe, and definitely the interest of the company is by far not always aligned with the interest of 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 people. So I think we have to. Um, discuss it in such a way that people also realize that there is a problem because still I see a lot of people who completely don't see any problem with you with putting all photos all conversations on Facebook uh, they think ah well I have nothing to hide and and that's that's a very naive way of of, of thinking uh, and from the political uh, side I think well at least in the Netherlands I don't know how it is exactly in, in other EU countries but here in the last couple of years finally um, it started to dawn on politicians that uh, that we should take back democratic control much uh, much more. But I'm okay. I'm I'm not a politician, so that's not my my specialty. But I think you bring up the right point, and it's uh, well, it's it's ultimately ultimately up to our national politicians and European politicians to put this high on the agenda. But I think by now it is. It, it's like. Okay, how do we really change it? How we make those American companies less powerful? How do we create our own European infrastructure that we can rely on? It's a long and hard fight, but a very important fight. You were saying that in Europe, the academic sector is, is really prepared for AI and excited about technology, but that the you know governmental sector is less enthusiastic, more branded by regulation in Europe for the rest of the tech world. How do you think we could potentially get the government to be a little bit more even curious, genuinely curious about technology in a way that would help, you know, something like CERN for AI happen in Europe? Yeah. I think what concerns many governments, uh, and, and that is really different from, from an institute like CERN, like if you, if you try to find out the fundamental build, building blocks of nature, in, in the first place, it's purely curiosity-driven research, and maybe far, far away there is a application. But the applications are, are it's not what CERN is about, applications. And that is, of course, very different with artificial intelligence, especially with the artificial intelligence we have nowadays. We create a lot of data. These data, they have a commercial value, but they also have a, a political value. And, and that, I think, is the, uh, the main difficulty. If we produce data here in the Netherlands, okay, they tell something about our citizens, about our consumers. Are we really going to share them with Germany, with France, with Czech Republic? I think there, there, there is political hesitation around this. But I do think that it is possible to solve this problem from a technical uh, point of view. I do know that there are scientists working on something which is called data uh, spaces. And data spaces are basically spaces where you store data for coming from all kinds of countries or companies. And then you, you let the countries and the companies decide under which conditions other countries, other companies can use these data. 
And I think if we are able to build such, a, such an infrastructure, it might be much the considerations uh, around abuse of data, around privacy, we might be able to, to manage this in a, mu- in a much better way. So I think if you create a technological solution for sharing data in such a way that people can really say, well, under these and these conditions, you can have my data, and under these and these conditions, you cannot have my data, then I hope that there will be also more political will to cooperate within the EU in, if, if it's about sharing data. A lot of our guests uh, from our podcast, especially Jovan Kurbalia from the Diplo Foundation, brought up that there is a need for a, a sort of new enlightenment, maybe maybe globally, but in Europe for um, how we think about things, how we approach knowledge and discovery and the new things that are now the biggest concerns. As you know, someone who studied philosophy, <laughs> yeah, do you think yeah, this, yeah, yeah. There, is, there is potential for this and what it would look like? The, 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 let's say the, the, the classical enlightenment in the 17th century was a change basically from religion to science. And if I think about a new form of enlightenment, I, I would call it, uh, I think, digital humanism. And for me, digital humanism has has three components. First, humans should become more empowered and more digital uh, literate. So it has a lot to do with education and with with giving people the possibility, uh, an equal possibility to use all those new digital technologies. The second part of digital humanism for me is that we have to try to make technology more human. And then in two ways, we can use artificial intelligence in such a way that systems can much better communicate with us. So AI is better to able to understand what we tell, understand what we write. Artificial intelligence uh, can also talk with us. Maybe it will uh, be able to understand our body language. The second part of technology becoming more human is that we have to really think harder and better about the values that we put into into our systems for and this from the very beginning. So Facebook is an example which they didn't do that they just thought okay um, we don't have responsible responsibility for people what people put uh, put online just put everything online and we will see what happen, happens well that is definitely not a good idea from the very beginning you know that people are going to abuse the system and you have to create a system that minimalizes this abuse the third part of digital humanism is is what i already uh, called before in this podcast hybrid Um, intelligence. I really think that the future belongs to people um, who best work together with artificial intelligence. We humans are still much better than the best artificial intelligence system in common sense. Uh, Even a little kid of three years old has more common sense than the best, best computer in the world. We can learn from very little data. I mean, the best AI system needs tons and tons of data to learn from. Whereas a, a baby who is born will very rapidly re- recognizes uh, her mother and, and, and her father. We are very good at reasoning about cause and effect. Machines are very, very bad at this. If you give data to a machine about how many people drone in the water in summer, and you give uh, the machine also data about how many ice creams are sold in summer and in winter, then the machine easily concludes, okay, um, people drown in summer because more ice creams are sold. (laughs) And every kid will tell you that, well, more ice creams are sold because we like to eat something cold when it's very warm and more people drown because in summer it's warm and you go into the water. So machines are really bad at this cause and effect reasoning. 
we humans are still much better in at uh, abstracting and generalizing from from data. Uh, our brain uh, consumes something like 20 watt uh, in energy, which is like a little classical uh, incandescent light bulb. Well, if you look at all the big supercomputers, they they consume uh, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands times as many as many power, and they and then they can only only do they can only play chess or play go or or play poker, and we can talk, we can play the violin, we can play football. So there are still so many things in which humans are much better at that uh, uh, than machines. On the other hand, of course, machines they don't get tired. They uh, they can read so many texts which in my whole life I'm not not able to read. So that is what I mean with artificial intelligence. I would rather rely on a a doctor, human doctor who works together with artificial intelligence to find which disease I have or to propose uh, uh, which, which type of treatment to take, than a doctor who doesn't want to use artificial intelligence. And definitely I don't rely on a completely AI doctor. The same in the airplane. I would rather be in an airplane that is flown by a human pilot who knows how to cooperate with the autopilot than on a plane which only flies on the autopilot or a plane that only uh, uh, flies on the human pilot. So for me, this new enlightenment is, is what I would call digital humanism. Uh, make, empower people to use uh, uh, digital technology, make technology more human, and go for hybrid intelligence uh, instead of go for only artificial intelligence. I think Michael was very happy to hear that because he's also a pilot. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ah, great. <laughs> um, Actually, okay. I'm, 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 I'm writing a book at the moment about artificial intelligence, will, which will be published later this year in, in Dutch. And there I also talk about uh, uh, a story of uh, Qantas Airlines flight. I think it was in 2007, 2008, where really the computer, the automatic pilot went completely crazy. The plane flew down suddenly from 10 kilometers, 200 meters down, then went up, then went down again like 60 to 100 people really heavily injured and his pilot was hugely traumatized. And I mean, of course, over the years, automation really has made flying much safer, which Mika, of course, will be able to, uh, um, to underline. But uh, you also have to really make sure that pilots are trained what to do when the artificial intelligence makes a mistake. And, that's, and then you sometimes have very little time to decide. So it's, we have to work on how we can find the best cooperation. And, and I know that people are already studying this type of uh, interactions. I think that we are sort of winding down towards the end and I really enjoyed this conversation. I know hey. that Odessa, you have, you have a, a question for the, uh, for the very end, but if, if you don't mind sharing with us, well, you just shared with us. <laughs> that, that, I, that I would, would like to share my headline with you. I, well, one of the questions that's, I got. That's the question. That's the question. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> But, but before before we get to that, what is it that you are expecting to work on for the next couple of months, except for the book, or and what what can we look forward to coming yeah. out of uh, you know your yeah. office? I'm I'm presently uh, doing research for an article in a big Dutch uh, national newspaper, and this is about bias in data sets that are used for facial recognition. So more and more, we found out that the data sets that are used for uh, facial recognition software are heavily biased. So I think one or two years ago, it was found out that uh, the training data for 70%, uh, there were male people in the database. For 80%, all the, for 80% the people were white. 
so Joy Buolamwini, who's an American researcher um, with, a, with a dark skin, she found out that her face was by some of these facial recognition software uh, things not recognized, the same for other people with a, with a dark skin color. And if you dig into this, you also, well, I also, for example, found that there is a company which kind of took from the website uh, Flickr, kind of all photos they could find, they trained their system on this without people even have, having agreed on being used for, for this. But there is such a Creative Commons license, but I'm pretty sure that people who said, okay, you can use this under Creative Commons, they don't want that it's used to train facial recognition software that is sold to China to uh, keep an eye on the Uyghur, Uyghur population. So that's what I'm working on now, like uh, which, what is the bias in these data systems for facial recognition? Where do the data come from? And how can we potentially solve the problems with data, with facial recognition and bias in databases? So last question, you have the power over tomorrow's headlines globally. What do you want people to read, think about? Uh, I thought about it really, I, I really liked the question. It took me some time to, to come up with something, but, um, but I came up with the following. So uh, you open your uh, computer in the morning and the first headline you see is AI's moon landing and then colon, smart computer co-authors scientific paper. Oh, that's so sweet <laughs> for the computer. And that, 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 that also relates to my plea for a hybrid intelligence. Uh, I, I really think that, that there might be a future that we can put an AI as a co-author on a scientific paper because the AI was able to do experiments, to draw conclusions, and even to discuss with the human co-authors about uh, what, they are, what they are finding. So this, this headline for me kind of summarizes, on, on one hand, my view on artificial intelligence, and on the other hand, my hope. <laughs> Let me just say that, you know, jokingly, that's funny because this sort of headline would put me out of job, both as a pilot and as a researcher, but I, <laughs> I said co-authors, I said co-authors, so you are, you're the first author and then the AI is the second. <laughs> yeah, it was meant just a joke, but I very much like that. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> that was really nice talking to you. For listening next week we'll hear from the founder of art for amnesty and our good friend bill shipsey on the nexus of art society and politics until then have a great day